Please stand for the reading of the Old Testament lesson, which comes to us today from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy namesake. Amen. The New Testament lesson for this Lord's Day is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 6 verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask that you give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. The book of Job is one of the most moving and profound stories known to humanity. Here is the account of a righteous and godly man nearly overwhelmed by the loss of everything and by the death of most everyone he loved and who, now sick and afflicted beyond words, comes face to face with the sovereign God who brought all of these things to pass. And all the while, Job struggles to believe God's promise to rescue him from his plight when every circumstance and every word offered an explanation only serves to call into question either Job's righteousness or God's goodness. It's not only a moving and fascinating story, but almost all of us can relate to what we will read in this book. Many of us have been called to suffer and can relate to Job's plight. And quite likely, we all know people like Job's wife and friends who mean well, but who only make things worse every time they open their mouths. But what makes the book of Job so important for our consideration is the fact that in the life of Job, we come face to face with a number of fundamental and inescapable biblical truths. 
The first is God's absolute sovereignty over all of our lives, including our health and our personal circumstances. The second thing we encounter is the fact of human sin and finitude in contrast to the depths of God's wisdom and holiness. And the third thing we encounter in the book of Job is this well-intended but terribly flawed words of counsel from Job's wife and friends, which only serves to add insult to injury. This wonderful, moving, and utterly profound book is indeed what Francis Anderson describes as one of the supreme offerings of the human mind to the living God and one of the best gifts from God to men. Now, as we begin our new series on this profound of most profound of biblical books, we'll spend our time this morning describing the nature and character of this book and meeting its central character, this blameless and righteous man, Job who feared God and who shunned evil. Now it should come as no surprise that critical scholars often see Job as a work of fiction because the origins of this book are unknown and are shrouded in mystery. But it's clear from chapter 14 of Ezekiel's prophecy that Israel's prophets do not believe this story to be mythological since Job is mentioned by Ezekiel Ezekiel alongside of Noah and Daniel as men known for their righteous conduct in the face of unbelievers. In the book of James, chapter 5, verse 11, the apostle speaks of Job as a prophet whose perseverance in the face of great suffering was based upon his hope that God was full of compassion and mercy and that he would bring to pass all of those things that he had promised even when things appear to be beyond hope. Job's faithfulness is held out to us as God's people as something that we are to emulate in times of trial and persecution. And so Job must be considered an historical individual whose intense suffering and personal experience is substantially recorded for us in the pages of this book. Now undoubtedly, the story of Job was passed down across the generations either as oral tradition or as a written document before coming to an unknown author, a man who lived sometime during the time between Solomon and Israel's exile in Babylon. And so that places the writing of our canonical book of Job in that period when Israel's wisdom literature, books like Proverbs and the Psalms and so on, were being composed. And although the book of Job contains a mixture of almost every type of literature found in the Old Testament, it's most often considered under the heading of wisdom literature, which is why Job is placed in our Bibles before Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this unknown author produced from these earlier sources what is now our canonical book of Job. Now we also know this to be the case from the literary structure of the book itself. The prologue, or the beginning, chapters 1 and 2, God's speeches, which we find in chapters 38 through 42, and the epilogue, the final closing scene of the book, all use the covenantal name for God, Yahweh, while neither Job nor his friends use that name in the various speeches we find throughout the middle chapters, which, as you know, are a series of dialogues between Job and his friends. And so the introduction and the conclusion were added later or edited later since they contain information that Job would have never had. Job did not know about that heavenly scene in the first two chapters of this book. Now, this particular literary structure is appropriately called a sandwich style. 
in which the central core of the story, which is a series of these poetic speeches that runs from chapters 3 all the way through the end of chapter 42, is surrounded by an epilogue and a prologue, hence the sandwich structure. Now this means that the man Job, the historic Job, probably lived well before the time of Moses, most likely during the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. There are no references made in the book of Job to any of those events which are part and parcel of Israel's history. There are no references here to Abraham or his call or to Israel's bondage and deliverance from Egypt, nor does Job make any reference to those things that are critical to Israel's well-being, such as the temple or the monarchy. As one writer points out, it is rather astonishing how detached from Israel's history this book is. And yet, Job's friends, like Job himself, are not pagans, all of which points us then to the time of Abraham and the patriarchs somewhere between 2000 and 1500 B.C. Now, there are a number of other factors which reinforce placing Job's life during that time frame. The first is a theological reason. As John Calvin points out, he says, in fact, from the time of Abraham, Melchizedek had the church of God and sacrifices which were without any pollution. So although the greater part of the world was wrapped in many errors, God had reserved some little seed for himself who were retained under the pure truth, indeed waiting for God to establish his church. In other words, God has always had his true believers on the earth who are difficult to account for because they come to faith in extraordinary ways, one of them being Job. And so as we work our way through this book, we must remember that Job's trial and suffering fall toward the beginning of the redemptive drama when very little special revelation, when very little scripture had been given. And yet Job clearly knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Job knew that that God was the true and living God. Yet another reason as to why we can put Job in the time of the patriarchs can be found from the details of the book itself. Like the patriarchs, we'll read that Job lived to be more than 100 years. His great personal wealth is drawn from the size of his herds, and he acted as the priest of his household. Now, we also know from the first chapter the mention of the two enemies we'll see in a couple of weeks, the Sabaeans and Chaldeans, the fact that those tribes are around raiding points us to the fact that Job lived at some point during the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this story is passed down in successive generations until our present book of Job is composed by an unknown author, and we have it in its present form probably during the time of Solomon around 970 B.C. Now, what makes the story of Job so compelling is the fact that it deals with something with which every Christian must wrestle. God's sovereign control over every area of our lives. Now, we have no problem believing that God determines how tall we will be or whether we'll be male or female. We have no problem believing that God determines who our parents are and what our nationality will be. We don't doubt for a second that God determines what gifts and skills we will have as whether or not we are born to means or born to poverty. We accept the fact that God determines the circumstances of our lives, including our health, the length of our life, and whatever calamities may befall us. We accept all of these things without question. We all nod in agreement with the assertion that God is sovereign. At least we nod in agreement until God does something we don't like or something we don't understand. 
Now, as Christians, we also believe in original sin. All people enter this world are guilty for Adam's sin as well as for their own acts of sin. And therefore, whenever someone suffers, the easy answer as to why they suffer is to go back to our theological default setting. Why do people suffer? Because they did something wrong. They are sinners. We're being punished for what we did. But yet, that's not what happens to Job. Job, we are told, is a righteous man, blameless before God and his fellow man, and yet he suffers the loss of everything. All of his possessions. All of his children. He loses his health, becoming a miserable wretch who we read is covered with sores. And yet we also read that Job was a blameless and upright man, that he feared God, and that he shunned evil. In fact, it's Job's wife and his friends who point out that Job's suffering must have come about because he's a sinner, and therefore he deserves to suffer because he's done something that causes God to punish him. But the story of Job is the story of the suffering of the righteous, not of the wicked. And this is why that book strikes such a chord with us. Why do we suffer when we have done nothing to deserve it? Now, this is a very important point to keep in mind as we work our way through this book, because it's common for people to suggest that Job is really an answer to theodicy, that supposedly in this book we find an answer to that nagging question as to why a good God allows evil and why a good God allows the suffering of his creatures. Now, in order to answer that very important question, we'll hear the, the following answers pointed out. Our Arminian friends contend that God voluntarily limits his sovereignty so as to allow humans to exercise their freedom. They bring it upon themselves. Even worse, the open theists tell us that God is within time, and therefore he is truly limited as to what he can actually do about evil. God can direct evil, he can respond to it so as to minimize its consequences, he can even reward those who suffer. But ultimately, God is unable to control evil because he is truly limited. Oh yeah, they tell us God will win in the end, but in the meantime, this is how it is. They tell us that God suffers with us, that he learns with us as we suffer that he strives against evil in and through us, and maybe, just maybe, if we strive with him, things will come out all right in the end. But as you know, that approach horribly fails because the God of open theists is not the God of the Bible, and he is nothing but a figment of a fallen and sinful human imagination. Now, another common answer to that question as to why a good God allows evil is to say that God is sovereign over all things, including evil, but that God is not necessarily good. In many ways, this is the impersonal God of Islam, or even what is commonly called fate. Now, of course, the question which lurks behind this approach to the problem of evil is that God has a dark side that he manifests himself either as a God of love or a God of vengeance, as he wills, and we never know which manifestation we will face. And surely that is why our contemporaries get very nervous when we as Reformed Christians talk about God's sovereignty, when we speak about things like election and predestination. Because people hear God's sovereignty and deep down inside they fear that a sovereign God is not really a good God. People like Dave Hunt tell us that this absolute sovereign God of the Calvinists sends millions to hell 
that he causes people to suffer. And unless people like that can establish a prominent role for human freedom, they have no explanation as to why people suffer. And so they recoil in horror at their misconception of Calvin's sovereign God who is actually cruel and who might even be demonic. But that answer fails because it can't address the biblical data, which clearly teaches that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, but he is in no sense the author of evil. Now, the third possible answer to that question as to why a good God allows suffering is that people are basically sinful. So if someone suddenly suffers, it must be because they've done something wrong that brings about God's judgment upon them. Now, the ancients believed that God was completely sovereign and that people are sinful, but they link these two things together in such a way as the degree to which someone suffered was also the degree to which they had sinned. That's the view held by Job's wife. That's the view held by Job's friends and probably even initially by Job himself. And that's the view held by many people today, including our own friends and family who sound very much like the characters we're going to meet later on in the story. Now that not only solves the problem raised by theodicy, how can a good God allow evil, but it provides the theological categories which Job's friend attempt, uh, his friends attempt to aid him in the midst of his suffering. Why is Job suffering? The logic runs along because he must have done something wrong. Since God punishes sinners and since Job is suffering, do the logic very quickly. It doesn't take long to run through the equation. Job must have provoked God to anger through some particular sin. Job is getting what he deserves. But you know, the book of Job is not written to answer theodicy. This is not a book of apologetics designed to answer the problem of evil. This is a book to God's people, many of whom he will call to suffer. And don't miss the obvious. Job is a righteous and upright man. According to the prologue of this book, Job did not commit some horrible sin that provoked God's punishment. And in light of our New Testament lesson, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10, it's very clear that Job didn't sow to the flesh. On the contrary, Job sowed to the Spirit. And therefore, Job was known widely for doing good, especially to his own family. In fact, Job was such a righteous man that God even brought Job to the attention of Satan. And thus the question raised and answered, even if not to our satisfaction in the book of Job, is not that of a typical theodicy. How can a good God allow evil? But rather that question that every believer has to ask and answer at some point, why do the righteous suffer? Why is it that someone like Job who believes God's promise and whose righteous conduct is clearly a fruit of their faith in Yahweh, like Job, why does that person suffer? And by extension, it's only natural for us to ask, why do any of us suffer? Especially if we, like Job, are blameless and upright in that we love God and that we shun evil. It is the suffering of the righteous, not the problem of evil in general, that is addressed by the story of Job. Now, the great irony in all of this is that the reader knows why all of this is coming to pass, but Job has no idea 
as to why God allows all of these horrible things to happen. The reader knows the very thing that Job does not. The reader knows that God has summoned Satan, pointed Job out to him, and then said to the accuser, Have you considered my servant Job? My righteous servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. And Satan sees this challenge as a great opportunity because not only can he demonstrate that people love God only insofar as God blesses them, but neither can Satan resist the opportunity to afflict that man who is the very apple of God's eye. Take away Job's possessions. Take away all his loved ones. Take away his health. And God's plan to entice people to love him will be exposed for what it is, divine bribery. And so, Satan reasons, Job isn't really righteous after all. Job's righteousness is ultimately self-serving. Job obeys because he knows that God will bless him if he does. And so Satan enters God's presence and dares to ask, let me take away all those blessings and let's see if Job still loves you. Job's supposed righteousness will be shown to be nothing but self-interest and therefore sin, and God's demands for righteousness and his dispensing of covenant blessing and curse will therefore be exposed to be nothing but divine bribery. But once Satan has taken up the challenge, God must permit his arch enemy to remove all those things which God is supposedly using to get Job to behave righteously. And Job must pass that test. This righteous man must endure this unspeakable ordeal without knowing what we do, how the story comes out in the end. Only the reader knows why Job's ordeal comes to pass. Job must rely on his faith in Yahweh's promise, even in the face of overwhelming evidence and even in light of what appears to be sound theological counsel to the contrary. Job must believe to the bitter end that God will do what is right and that somehow and in some way Job is going to be vindicated in the end because Job, Job knows that God does not punish blameless and upright people for their sins. And Job knows that he is blameless and upright before the Lord. And yet the mystery, the question, the struggle is blameless and upright people suffer. And so Job and the reader then are left to struggle with why this is the case. And so it's with that broad historical background, that general theological purpose in mind, that we now turn to the first few verses of this book and meet that man who is the central character of this amazing story. Now in verse 1 we read the following, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, the land of Uz, for you geography buffs, is that river to the that region to the east of the Jordan River, Chadem in Hebrew, the east. It's now part of the modern nation of Jordan, anywhere between Edom on the south, Moab on the east, and Ammon on the north. Now, while Job is not an Israelite, his ancestry or tribal identification isn't given to us, he clearly worships Israel's God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so apparently to Job's family and his friends. But as the story opens and we meet the central character, what stands out, what jumps out, is the assertion that Job was blameless and upright, 
and that he feared God and shunned evil. What does that mean? Well, one thing it does not mean is that Job was sinless or that he had attained a Wesleyan victory over all known sin. We know this to be the case because elsewhere in the book, Job clearly declares himself to be a sinner. In Job 7.20, Job laments, If I've sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? In Job 13, Job laments, For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. And finally, in Job 16, we read, Surely then you will not Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. Job is acknowledging that he is, in fact, a sinner. But if Job has acknowledged himself to be a sinner, what does it mean when Job is described as being blameless and upright? The answer is very simple. It means what it says. Job was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. Job is an honest man. Job is a moral man who avoided evil. We know this because in chapters 29 through 31, Job appeals to the public knowledge of his piety, which is the visible manifestation of his faith in Yahweh. And thus, when we read that Job was blameless and upright, we understand this to mean that Job believed Yahweh's promise to forgive his sins, and that like Abraham, Job is justified through the means of faith. Job believes and Job confesses that Yahweh will cover his sins through this act of faith. Christ's righteousness then is reckoned to Job. But Job's faith in Yahweh also bore much fruit of the Spirit, fruit which was tangible to all who knew him, and as we read, fruit that was especially pleasing to Yahweh. As one writer puts it, there was an honest harmony between Job's profession and his life, quite the opposite of the hypocrisy which was presently accused by Satan and later by his friends. Let me put it this way. Having been justified by faith, Job lived in such a way that his conduct before men was blameless and upright in contrast to someone who is indifferent to the things of God or who hypocritically professes one thing, but then lives like that profession of faith makes no difference whatsoever to their conduct. Job's conduct throughout this letter is exemplary. Some of it's described in the following verses and the way in which he serves as priest of his family. Later on in Job chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, one of Job's friends comes to Job and says about him, Think you how you have instructed many, how you've strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumble. You've strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence? and your blameless ways your hope. People saw the difference in Job. In Job 42, verse 8, God rebukes one of Job's friends by saying to him, My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and deal not with you according to your folly. You have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. In this we see that Job is a righteous man, not only by virtue of his justification through faith, but by virtue of his daily conduct. And therefore, when Job suffers, it is not because he has some secret sin or because God is punishing Job because he done something that provokes God to anger. And that's precisely why Satan sets out to expose Job's obedience as phony and explains why the Lord allows Job to be put to the test. 
Because even if God turned Satan to an ash at that moment, the question about human righteousness resulting from divine bribery would still be hanging out there unanswered. Job was truly blameless and upright. Job had done nothing to bring about the trial that is about to befall him. He feared God. He shunned evil. Hence, God allows Satan to put Job to the test to vindicate God's righteous dealing with his creatures. And this also explains to us why Job has every right to cry out to God to vindicate him because he is blameless and upright. God will preserve his good name because God has, not prom- God has, punished, God has promised not to punish the wicked. But why then does Job suffer if he's done nothing wrong? And that's the question that this book will seek to answer. And that answer is found in the hidden purposes and in the transcendent wisdom of a sovereign God. Now, in verses 2 through 3, we learn something of Job's personal circumstances before his ordeal begins. We read that he had seven sons and three daughters, that he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Obviously, most of them had shovels. He was the greatest man, we read, among all the people of the East. Now, as a servant of Yahweh, Job took the creation mandate seriously. He has a large family, and some think that the numbers of his children uh, indicate the completeness of God's blessing upon him. And that's indicated by this large number of animals, which is obviously the manifestation of God's blessing. And Job's great piety can be very clearly seen in what follows. Because we read in verses 4 through 5 that Job's sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of fasting, feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this is Job's regular custom. Not only does Job function as a priest to his family, Job knows that there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. Burnt offerings not only point ahead to a messianic redeemer, but burnt offerings are also a means of consecration. Job ensured that his own and his family's sins are covered, but he continually dedicates everything that he has unto the Lord. And here we see in part what it means when we read that Job was blameless and upright. Job is the priest of his home. He acknowledged that everything he has comes from the hand of a gracious God. And everyone who witnessed this knew that Job was the greatest man in the East. And this is the man that God will point out to Satan and thereby plunge him into this great ordeal which runs in the balance of this great book. Well, what then, as we conclude, are we to learn from these opening verses of Job? Well, there are three very important things we need to note about Job. First, Job occupies a unique role in redemptive history unlike that of any other person. Second, Job is in many ways a type of Christ. And third, Job is an example for us to follow in the midst of our own suffering. Now, as to the first point, Job occupies a very unique role in redemptive history. And although we know very little about the man himself other than he was very pious, 
We know that Job lived early on in the drama of redemption when very little information about the coming Redeemer had been revealed. But Job believes in the God of Abraham. He made burnt burnt offerings for the forgiveness of his sins and for those in his family to consecrate them unto the Lord. And Yahweh himself took delight in Job's upright living and in his blameless behavior. And it is God who brings Job to the attention of Satan thereby setting in motion this ordeal that Job is about to undergo. And so this means that in many ways, Job or Job's ordeal is unique to him. And this is very important for us to keep in mind because when we suffer, unlike Job, we do not suffer at the hands of the devil. Job lived well before the coming of Christ and well before Christ's defeat of Satan on the cross that resulted in what John describes in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, as a war in heaven when the devil was cast down from heaven to the earth. Beloved, Satan no longer has access to the throne of God. He cannot accuse us, nor can he go before God and attempt to barter with God about our personal circumstances. Furthermore, Job is unique in that not only does Job demonstrate a remarkable piety, the Lord himself says about Job, there's no one else like him. But Job's ordeal and its outcome proves that all of God's dealings with his creatures are just and right, even if we don't like or even if we don't understand why it is that God does what he does. While the secret things belong to the Lord, in this story we struggle to answer that question once asked by Abraham. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? In the story of Job... We get an answer to that question. The answer is yes. God will always do what is right, even if his purposes are hidden from us, and even if we don't know them until we enter his presence. We may have very few of the answers now, but one day we will have them all. A second thing, while Job's great piety is unique, Job is still a sinner. He must offer sacrifices for sin. And while he's faultless and blameless and so is to the spirit and not to the flesh, Job was born in sin. Job is a child of Adam and Job must taste the sting of death. In the words of one writer, Job is as faultless as any man can be. He's not every man. He's unique. God boasts that there's no one on earth like him, like Job. As such, Job presents the case of an innocent sufferer in what is almost its acutest form. In one life only is Job excelled, both in innocence and in grief. In Jesus, who sinned not at all, but who endured the greatest agony of any man. In his perfection of obedience and of suffering, the question of Job and of us all has its final answer. And so while Job passes this test, he did so only for himself and to prove God's wisdom in the face of Satan's challenge. But Jesus Christ endured a far greater trial than Job, and he did so on behalf of the entire human race. Jesus Christ alone was without sin. Jesus Christ alone fulfilled all righteousness, something Job's great piety could not accomplish for himself, let alone for others. And third, as a justified sinner, Job, like Abraham, is a member of the covenant of grace. Because through the means of faith, Job received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Job believes God's promise. 
He offers sacrifices for sin on behalf of himself and his family. But Job offers these sacrifices to consecrate his family unto the Lord, and that too is part of membership in the covenants. And thus, in many ways, Job is just like us. He's what we would commonly call a good Christian or a faithful or pious man. Job is above reproach, we read, which, by the way, is the same thing we read of those who are called to serve in Christ's church as a minister or an elder or a deacon. Job did as Paul instructs all of us to do in Galatians chapter 6, where Paul reminds us that the one who sows to please the sinful nature, the sarks, the flesh, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Therefore, Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll receive a harvest if we don't give up. And that was true for Job, and it should be true for us as well. And so Job's piety, then, is an example to us of that kind of piety that ought to be manifest in our own lives. But we also learn from Job how we should respond to God should suffering be his purpose for us. Because when Job is called to suffer, he does not curse God. He comes close, but he doesn't curse God, nor do we ever read in the story that Job seeks to take his own life. Because he is blameless, Job has every right to cry out for vindication, as do we if we have sown to the Spirit. Job is not suffering because he's done something wrong, but rather Job is suffering because God has a purpose for his ordeal as yet unknown to Job. But unlike Job, the reader knows how the story ends. And even when Job suffers beyond human comprehension, he still declares, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. How much more should we do the same? For we see what Job does not see. We see that the Redeemer's agony upon the cross is but a prelude to the victory won through the empty tomb and the exaltation we see in our Lord's ascension into heaven because the one who suffered for our sins dying in unspeakable agony transcends Job's suffering. And he has been given a name that is above every other name because he is now King of kings and Lord of lords and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Job knew that God in his wisdom would do what is right and even in the midst of his suffering, Job tries not to look back. His friends keep saying, look back, Job, see what you did. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. If only I had... Instead, Job looks ahead to that time when God's wisdom and purpose will finally be revealed. And in this... Job is a fitting and wonderful example for us. For in the midst of our suffering, should God bring it into our lives, we look at Job, and Job points us to Jesus Christ, who is the man of sorrows, the man fully acquainted with grief and suffering, and who is yet at that same time that blessed Redeemer who did stand upon the earth. For even in the midst of his grief, even in the midst of his loss and in his agony, Job knew one fundamental fact that enabled him to endure. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And beloved, we have seen that one of whom Job speaks 
And he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is that one in whom human sin and the mysteries of human suffering will find their answer. Amen.